Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let us pray. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I uh, broke one of my own internal rules the other day. Do you remember how when you were a kid, some of, some of you were still kids, and a grown-up says something to you and you think, man, I am never saying that to somebody. <laughs> well, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, sometimes kids get in funks, you know, and I was in a bit of a funk. I, who knows, I probably got caught drawing on the wall or something. And, you know, I was in a bad mood, and I remember an exasperated adult <laughs> looking at me and saying, having probably tried a whole lot of other things, listen, you just got to be more positive, okay? Just, just be, be a little happier and things will be better. And I remember as a kid just looking at that adult and thinking, this is the dumbest, you know, what, what are you wanting here? <laughs> it's so off-putting, isn't it? When we're, when we're struggling with something when we're, and someone comes in and they try to encourage us and they say, just be happier. Just, have you tried not being sad? It's... Well, fast forward to a few months ago, and I'm talking with one of my children, which will remain nameless, but was getting in trouble a lot, and I was at my wit's end, and I, I found myself with all of the sort of the, the counseling expertise I could muster, you know, kid, you just got to be more positive sometimes. <laughs> and as I said it, I thought, oh, no. It's, it's frustrating, right? We, we want... Uh, we want joy. We, we want to feel happier. We want to feel more positive. That's the goal. The problem is getting there. And so when we come to Philippians, and all of Philippians resonates with this theme of joy, but then it becomes explicit here in chapter 3, this command, rejoice in the Lord, can feel to me, can feel to us like it felt to me as a child, like it felt to my child. Yeah, sure, Paul. I'd like to be joyful, wouldn't we all? The goal is right. We, we want the joy. We want to be able to thrive in life, to experience a kind of generous well-being, a, a kind of well-being that, that holds on to us, that grips us, and that gives us a new perspective on life. But we can't ever seem to hang on to it. And so we chase thing after thing after thing in hopes that it will give it to us. And we find little glimpses, right? We, we, and I'm not talking about bad things here. I'm talking about we pursue good things that give us a little glimpse of joy, the, the perfect sunset, the perfect weather, um, a good time with family and friends. And for a moment, we feel something, and then it's gone. And we're off to chasing another thing. We can't ever seem to attain it in a way that we can hold on to. The, uh, the secular writer, David Foster Wallace, he talked about this kind of pursuit as a kind of worship. What's interesting to me is, is Wallace was not, as far as I know, was not a, a Christian or even a religious person, but he, he was talking to a group at Kenyon College once, and he said, the thing is that there's, there's actually no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. We're all chasing something. And then he goes on to say, listen, that's a fraught decision. 
what to worship. Because the thing that you worship will consume you. He says, whatever it is, these things will eat you alive. If you worship money, you will never have enough. If you worship your own body, if you worship beauty, you will always be afraid of being ugly. If you worship power, you will need ever more and more control to keep the fear at bay. And so we give ourselves over to these pursuits, but we never actually get there. It's like the myth of Sisyphus. We're never ever, we're just not quite able to accomplish the goal. Which is maybe why we find it so irritating when someone says to be joyful. How do we even do that? But of course, Paul knows this is the predicament. He, Paul, isn't, Paul doesn't sort of write in platitudes. He's not just trying to sort of give an empty piece of encouragement. If you read, listen, if you read something in Paul that sounds like it should go in a Hallmark card, you, you've missed something. Go back and read it again. Paul isn't just telling them to be joyful and then moving on to a new topic. He's priming them to teach them about joy. He wants to teach them about the life that is lived in joy, in the joy of the Lord. And he does that by juxtaposing this command with two approaches to the gospel that will absolutely cripple joy. Be joyful, he says, and watch out. There are these two ways that will inhibit your ability to experience joy. And so he explores each of these, and then having identified them, he provides the sort of counterexample. Here's the thing that will cripple joy. Here's the right approach. And the first, he says, is that your joy will be inhibited when you organize your life, even your religious life, around anything other than Christ. And so he begins the passage in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And this is, this is tense language, right? You, Paul is using language here that as a child would have introduced my mouth to a bar of soap. What's going on here? Paul is deeply concerned. Paul is anxious for these people that he is invested in, that he has loved, that he has shown the gospel And there's this group that's come in after him that seems to have sort of followed him around that wants to say something like, oh, great, we're so glad you've heard about Jesus, but you know, if you you really want to be right with God, if you really want to be safe, here are these other things you need to do. Here are these ways to really be spiritual, to be a good religious person. If you really want to check all the boxes... In this particular example, you ought to become Jewish. You ought to keep the Sabbath and the feasts and the fasts. You ought to do all these other things, and then you'll be really safe. They talk about Christ, but Christ on their vision has become a part of a larger project. If you want to be safe with God, if you want to be religiously fulfilled, then sure, Jesus is important, but there's also all this other stuff. And you can see Paul just ripping his hair out at this point. He says, no, don't do that. We're reminded of Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians, which is a letter all about this particular topic. He says, who has bewitched you? How How did you look at Christ and then end up chasing all of these other things? It's like you're under a spell. Even here, Paul, like I said, is filled with an anxiety for the people he loves 
And we might be tempted to think, what's the big deal, Paul? Well, these are, these are good things, right? I mean, after all, if God thinks these things are good and he seems to have at some point, it'd probably be fine to adopt them. It can't hurt anything. After all, isn't this a way to be more religious, to be more spiritual? We've got all these pagan Romans, Paul. You're going to balk at someone trying to give them just a little bit of moral scruples? But no, Paul isn't anti-religion. He's not anti-spiritual growth. He, what does he say in Corinthians? I, listen, I've had more, if we're talking about spiritual experiences, I've had more spiritual experiences than any of you. He says, that's not the issue. No, what Paul is worried about, what has driven Paul to the edge of an apoplectic fit about, is an image of the Christian life without Christ at the center. A version of the faith so distorted, so disfigured, as to be nearly beyond recognition And yet for Paul, it's exactly the vision that he himself once held. So Paul hears the reports from Epaphroditus about what's being offered to the Philippians. And he says, no, no, look, I've already gone down that path. I've accomplished everything they're telling you to do. Remember, he has that checklist of these are all the things that I've done under the law circumcised, a a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. I've done it all. And he says, in that my zeal, my passion for the law became so all-consuming that I murdered the very people of God. This was the righteousness that I acquired through the law. What's, What's happened here? Paul says, I was all in on this vision and I missed the entire point. What has Paul ripping his hair out is that these people are coming around and saying, oh, Jesus is just an add-on. Jesus is just another thing that God is doing. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is the only thing that God has been doing from the beginning. Paul understands that the law has a purpose, that the law has a goal. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the entirety of God's covenant people was, what does he say to Abraham? To bless the nations. How? through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. Paul says, if you begin with this vision of Jesus and then you go back to the law, you've missed the entire point. The point was Jesus. Paul says, I followed the law, I pursued the law without Christ, and the zeal for the law led me to persecuting God's own people. And I think there's a lesson here for us, right? There aren't many people running around saying, listen, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to go back and observe all of the law, right? But we have our own ways of doing this. We have our own pursuits of religion, our own pursuits of the spiritual life that are focused not upon Christ, but upon something else, upon some sort of sense of inner security, some sort of sense of a job well done, of being a good person, And Paul says, when you do that, your spiritual life becomes a source of death. Your pursuit of religion becomes a source of spiritual death. How often do we relate to God with a checklist in our hands? God, I've done this and this, so we're good, right? I've I've gone to church this month. I, I wrote a check. I prayed a couple times. I even did some acts of charity. So we're good, right? How often does our relationship to the church, to acts of charity, to religion, take primacy over the main thing, the best thing? 
And of course, in this kind of relationship, there can be no joy, right? Because it's about obligation. It's about me trying to appease, me trying to earn my place, to convince God to love me is really what's going on here. Look, God, I'm doing a good job. And at that point, we're back to this this issue from Wallace, right? That Wallace was describing. Whatever you're chasing, you'll never catch it. If your desire is security, you're going to need an ever-increasing amount of it. If the thing you're chasing is righteousness even, you're going to need more and more evidence that you are righteous. What are we to do? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. He goes on to speak to the Philippians. And as is always the case in Paul, the solution is not our own activity. He says, that's the problem. You're chasing is the very problem because you'll never catch it. The solution is the reception of and the response to the fact that you have already been caught by the Savior. That the thing that you're chasing has chased after you and caught you. Paul says, I count all of these other things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know, everywhere else in Paul when he's writing, the the stock phrase is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then here he flips it. He flips it to make a point. Christ Jesus, my Lord, the one who has saved me. And this whole section is replete with all of these images, all of these verbs that have to do with intimacy, with the love of Christ. Listen to what he says here. He says, describe his relationship with Christ. He says, I know Christ. I have gained Christ. I am found in Christ. I have been grasped by Christ. Christ has called me his own. Taking joy in the Lord for Paul isn't the result of trying harder. It's not something you accomplish by trying to work yourself up to be peppy or to be happy, right? To be a good Christian. It's a response to the reality that Christ loves you already. And has made you his own. It's like the poet Rilke wrote, if all we're doing is catching a ball that you've thrown yourself, all is mere skill and little gain. But when you're suddenly the catcher of a ball thrown by an eternal partner to you, to your center, by the great bridge-building God, then catching becomes a power. We have been chasing after joy, chasing after God, trying to convince him to love us. Paul says he already loves you. That's the beginning. That's the center. Love is a transformative, a transforming power. All of a sudden, that love that you receive inside of yourself begins to work something new within you. There's a story that I, that I love. It's, some of you may know um, that I have recently acquired a, a sort of obsession with sailing. Now, not actual sailing, because I get seasick pushing my kids on the swing set, all right? But I love stories about sailing. And so over the last year, I've been reading these books and, and learning about sort of the, you know, the, the knots and the lines and the boom and, you know, all these other words that I don't really understand. Uh, and I've been reading about historical sailing. There's a story that I think exemplifies this kind of transformation that sets in when, you ha- when you've centered your joy, right? Uh, it's a story about, it's, it's a fanciful story. 
unfortunately. I mean, it's probably not true, but it's a story about a man from history named Lord, Horatio, Admir- Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson. All right. Now, Nelson is this giant figure in British history, right? He's, he's probably the greatest military mind that they've had. Uh, there are stories all over the place about him, but there's this one story about a midnight siege on a boat, right, in the middle of the ocean, and it's freezing. And all the officers are up on the, on the deck with their cloaks, their heavy cloaks on, buttoned all the way up over their mufflers, gloves, everything, trying to stay warm. One of the officers looks over and sees Nelson in his shirt sleeves. He goes up to him. He says, uh, sir, can I, can, can I give you my coat? And, you know, he's really hoping Nelson says no. And Nelson turns to him and says, oh, I, I don't need it. Zeal for king and country keep me warm. Now, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> what, what do you mean, Nelson? This is, this is absurd. But it's a good story all the same. There's something in it that speaks to us, something that we want, something that deep down we all crave. Nelson is gripped by this singular passion, by a driving cause, and his having been gripped by that vision begins to work its way through his very being. It's as if he's warmed by a different sun. This is a picture of the kind of whole self-orientation that love produces. And I would argue that it's an expression of joy, joy which warms the heart even in the midst of adversity, joy which captures our whole field of vision. We might say that in this fanciful description of Nelson, we see Nelson in joy. And it's a joy that we want. We want to be captured by a vision that transforms us from the inside out. And yet, we so often fail to achieve that. Having been captured by the vision, the question becomes, are we willing to allow it to transform us? Or do we try instead to have the vision without the transformation? Paul, having satisfied the first barrier to joy, having reassured them, listen, Christ is chasing and has caught you, now turns to exhort them to allow Christ's work to begin transforming their vision of reality. And he warns them that to find our joy in the Lord requires accepting a changed vision, requires that we allow ourselves to be warmed by a different sun. Paul says, this time through tears in verse 18, there are some who are living as enemies of the cross. I tell you now through tears, there are some who are living as enemies of the cross. Who's he talking about here? Notice the shift in tone. No longer is it anxiety for his people. No longer is it it a kind of passionate um, anger towards those that would lead his people astray. Now it's tears. Whereas before... Paul was speaking of those who would distort the gospel, who would try to give you Jesus and something else. In view here are not those who have rejected Jesus, but those who have heard the gospel, who know that Christ has drawn near to take hold of them and yet have refused to be transformed. They've attempted a kind of partial buy-in. And so they look at the cost of discipleship. They see the cross, they see the suffering, but they see it only as a Roman would see it the infamous end of failure and pain. And they think to themselves, maybe I can have Jesus without that. Maybe I can love Jesus, but avoid the self-sacrifice. 
And Paul here is re-emphasizing something that he's been saying throughout the letter. To follow Christ is, is to be transformed into the image of Christ. To view life according to his pattern of life. He's given us that pattern in chapter 2, right? Where he has this poem about the Messiah. And he says, have in your mind the same view that Christ had, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, accepting even the cross. Paul's also modeled that in his own life. If you go back and look at the beginning of this chapter, what is Paul talking about? He's saying, listen, I had all of these credentials and I've emptied myself of them. I've abandoned them for the sake of being a servant of Christ. He's given them the model. He's provided a model of it himself. And now, like a troublesome preacher, he's getting into their business a little. Paul is saying, if you want joy, you have to allow the love of Christ to transform you. But that means living according to the vision of a different kingdom, a different son. And this language of kingdom here is important. Recall where, where and to whom Paul is writing. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus the King. And this language of Savior, Lord, King, these are all Roman terms. They're all titles for Caesar. Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven. And yet here we have Paul sitting in a Roman cell, writing to Roman citizens in a colony on the edge of the empire, and writing using language in direct opposition to Caesar. And when he talks about the cross, he's taking Rome's instrument of torture, the cross where Rome hung its enemies, and he's recasting it. The cross has become a joy rather than a sorrow. It's become a means rather than an end. No one minds suffering in the pursuit of a great good, right? We all willingly sign up for it. All of you in school, willingly or unwillingly, one way or another, you go through it, right? And you get to the summer, you get to graduation, and it was all what? Worth it. Paul is saying the suffering of the cross is not an end, it's a means to an end. And in that vision, in this logic of the kingdom, you can take joy even in the struggle. Paul is in effect echoing Christ's own words, you can't serve two masters here. You can't serve Jesus and yet keep this vision of the Roman Empire or any other vision. Your vision has to be transformed by Christ. And then he says in verse 17, imitate me. In the same way that I have allowed Christ to reinterpret those good things, in the same way that I have suffered the loss of them for the sake of knowing Christ, so you also allow the vision of Christ to change your very understanding of who and where you are. You are citizens of a different kingdom. Find your joy there. We have in this passage Paul urging us to joy, a joy grounded in the pursuit of the Christ who has pursued us, a joy characterized by a wholehearted pursuit of the Lord, a, pur a pursuit that transforms our very way of engaging with the world. And I would su suggest that you can take these two ends, these two threats to joy, as a kind of personal examine. When I find myself struggling to rejoice in the Lord, what is it that inhibits me? 
Is it possible, perhaps, that I'm pursuing as if I've not already been caught? Am I trying to convince God to love me? On the other hand, if I find myself lacking joy, lacking joy, is it because I've refused the transformation of Christ, that I've refused to collaborate with the work of the Spirit, that I don't want to, to change the way that I understand my own trajectory, who and where I am, where I am going? And then, having done that, having examined your own self, imitate Paul who says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. How? By partnering with the God who has begun the work in me and will himself see it through. Paul has painted a picture of joy as being the response of a soul that finds itself wholly transformed by the love of Christ. He presents to us a pattern of the Christian life modeled after the very life of our Savior and urges us to follow him in pursuing it. May you go forth into the world and rejoice in the Lord your Savior. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.